welcome you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Go ahead, Audrey. Uh, and try something a little different today, just giving you a set of the notes that I'm using um, that you can use as reference if you want to skip ahead or if you just want to reference these at home. Uh, this topic is not really addressed a whole lot, so I think you might find some of these scriptures uh, worthy of looking at at home on your own, because uh, I think kind of getting the depth of them uh, would help in your own study as they did mine. So Audrey's handing out a set. Hopefully there's enough for everyone. I think there will be, so feel free to take one. Feel free to look at it as I talk this morning, and uh, you can see what's coming up. A lot of you were on the session uh, yesterday morning with Randy Harris, started looking around on Zoom. Oh, wait a minute, I know this person. We had a good turnout. Uh, I know Shelton was there. Jackie, were you on there too, or just Shelton? No, I was traveling. You were traveling, okay. So I uh, saw Elizabeth, uh, Janet, uh, Barbara. So it was really good. In fact, I uh, had my first set of notes here for today's lesson, and whenever I've heard Randy Harris, it always turns out to be even better than I know it's going to be. So I started writing all the things he was saying on my set of notes, and then that necessitated coming up with a new set. But uh, if you want to catch what uh, Randy said... Um, I've got it all right here, but just some really good thoughts uh, yesterday morning. We're going to continue this morning, kind of a, a mini-series of lessons that I started a few weeks ago as Michael and I alternate. Uh, he's kind of taking on topics relating to the teachings of Jesus, especially the parables, and we'll see a little intersection of that today. I've been talking about themes concerning um, the future, uh, what happens after death, we're going to talk in weeks to come about the judgment. We're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about hell. We've talked about the resurrection already and the second coming of Christ. Uh, this morning we're going to focus just on what happens immediately upon our death. What happens immediately on, upon our death, understanding our existence after we die. This is a reality we just have to confront. And it's a painful reality, and this week it was brought to the forefront of my mind in a very painful way. Good Facebook friend, a daughter of an elder in the church at Santa Clara, uh, lives up in Reading. Uh, her husband's a preacher up there. They have an older daughter. There's also Facebook friends, and I'd see her post, and always enjoying being with her friends and being with her family, and her family clearly loved her, and... Uh, she loved them, and you can tell I'm using the past tense. All of a sudden, a week ago, her mother passed that our, or posted that our dear Evan, that was the daughter's name, passed from this life. She was probably in her early 30s. And usually when you're on Facebook, you're seeing pictures of cats, maybe food. You're seeing the fun things that people are doing, and Sometimes life's harsh reality is posted there as well. People just diagnosed with terminal conditions, uh, injury of some kind, and the worst of all is the death of a child. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And it still hits me now, because this morning I saw the same mother that had to post the death of her oldest daughter have to post the details of the upcoming memorial service. I cannot imagine a worse, more painful thing to do as a parent, as a father of four daughters. And to do it for a daughter that was just in her 30s, uh, just a range of emotions and realities come to the forefront and one of the realities that any one connected to someone who passes has to think about is what happened to them the moment they died. Not what was the cause of death. That's painful and riveting enough to consider, but where do they go immediately upon death? And for the believer, that's a real question because if Jesus has not returned yet and we are yet to experience the resurrection and the body's still here, where is that person? If we know that our existence is more than just a body. We're going to explore that this morning and try to understand it the best we can biblically. 
Uh, there is no one place to go in Scripture to get the answers to all of our questions. There's not like there's a, a chapter where Jesus and the apostles said, okay, this is going to be all the instruction on what happens to the body or the spirit right after death. Uh, there's no extensive direct instruction at all. We kind of have to put together, and at times it feels like piecing together, different texts that do give us great insight. And we'll look at one in particular, Luke 16. Uh, but there are a lot of other places that I think give us very meaningful insight to give us an answer of what to expect, especially immediately upon our death. We're going to look at three fundamental truths this morning that I think do rise to the surface as you look at all the relevant teaching in Scripture. Uh, they're teachings that will give us great insight as far as something happens immediately. We don't just go into the clouds and float or anything like that. But for the believer, they're designed to give us great hope concerning either our own death one day or the death of someone who Paul describes as simply in Christ. And that is the purpose, the primary purpose of most all of these texts. Here's the first fundamental truth. And these truths also are designed to shape our lives. They're not just to give us knowledge so we know what's going to happen in the future, but these truths shape our lives. They affect the way we live in the here and now, and they put us on a different course. I just want to give an illustration of that. Uh, many times as a teacher, I have to kind of give a future reality to some of my students. I have a junior right now. His, his identity will remain nameless. We'll just call him Freddie. He's not coming to terms with his grades and what's going to happen if he continues to fail certain classes because he's presently cutting classes. Uh, there's a girl he's interested in on campus. They appear to be cutting together. Uh, he's way behind. But he's a junior. He only has one more year to go. And I just had to sit down with Freddie uh, earlier this week and show him his transcript, show him here's the number of credits you need to graduate. Here's where you're at right now. Here's what happened last semester, which wasn't too good. And here's what you're on track to do this semester, which is going to put you significantly behind. It's going to make your senior year much more difficult than it would have been otherwise. And you're even at risk at not graduating. He's told me and his mother all along he has a plan. He has a plan. I have a plan, Mr. Mulligan. I told him, Freddie, this is the time to initiate that plan. Because uh, I go, this is, you're, you're making choices. I can, I can no longer influence any longer. You're just not coming to class where the help is. So your choices will determine what happens at graduation. Whether you'll be participating as you like to and as your mom is hoping for and in tears about at times when she thinks about you not graduating or you'll be outside wishing you'd done things differently. And that's the reality too when we talk about what the Bible teaches about the end of life. Let's go ahead and go to the first, first point that rises to the surface. Our spirit leaves our body. The first thing that we know for sure in Scripture is that our spirit leaves our body upon death. And this is the spirit of everyone, believer or non-believer. Here are the texts that give us insight into that. First of all, Ecclesiastes, one of the most clearest, uh, verses 6 through 7. Here, the writer, most likely Solomon, is writing about basically old age and the reality in very figurative terms about what happens as we age and we uh, get closer to death. He says in verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember hearing that growing up a lot in sermons. And then he goes on to describe what happens when you age. And he says in verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. We'll just pause here. Those are figurative terms about just the body really aging and experiencing the effects of age. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the well, or I'm sorry, and the wheel broken at the well. Then verse 7. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. This is death. The dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Here we find a clear picture of this dual nature where we know in Genesis man was formed, humankind, from the dust of the earth. Here the writer says, and we're going to return our physical body to that same physical form. And 
the realities of decay of the body or destruction of the body, if you will. It goes back to this original form. But that's not the end of that person's existence. It says, and the spirit, which sometimes in scripture is called the soul, most commonly the spirit, the spirit returns to God who gave it. So upon death, our spirit returns to God. Now look at James chapter 2, uh, verse 26. This is just another text that will speak to the fact that we have this dual nature. James chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 26. Here James is talking about the importance of works and how that uh, faith without works is dead and or works without faith is dead. Either one, you can look at it that way. And he makes a comparison, verse 26 of chapter 2, and he says this, and the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds or works is dead. Here he illustrates this reality of uh, faith without works and deeds is dead by simply comparing it to the body. He says your body without your spirit is dead. So the reality of someone's existence, the, the body simply upon death just wastes away. There is no purpose to try to make it retain the look of its original form except maybe for a funeral service. The idea of embalming as the ancient Egyptians did was simply a a wasted exercise, but they believed that that body would come back in a, a different form. But James says the body without the spirit is dead. Implying that the spirit goes on or the spirit leaves the body upon death. So here are these scriptures as we put them together. But probably one of the most helpful texts to go to is the next one. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here the Apostle Peter, one of the hand-picked followers of Jesus who was given this mission of being an apostle. The apostles would speak uh, through revelation as the Spirit would speak through them. So they were simply a mouthpiece of God to continue on the teaching of Christ. So Peter writes in the second letter about himself and his own eventual death. Uh, we'll read verse 12, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see him describe his existence in ways that are similar to what we've seen earlier. Peter writes in verse 12, 2 Peter 1, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent, as long as I live in the tent of this body. Verse 14, because I know that I will soon put it, what? Aside. As our dear Lord Jesus has made clear to me. Let's pause here, just looking at that very last statement. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. That may be a reference either to a direct revelation he received or something we find at the end of the Gospels where Jesus seems to preview the death of Peter himself. But what we'll center on is how he described his body. He says, verse 13, it's right to refresh you of these things or of your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. He describes his physical body as a tent. This is very relevant to me because I don't really like camping. Uh, a lot of people do. They'll spend thousands at REI. They'll go camping. They'll buy everything you need, the tent, the stove, the utensils. Um, and then go out into the woods and then do construction, putting all that tent together, uh, bringing in the food. I've never enjoyed that. I've only done it two or three times in my life. Uh, I identify with a bumper sticker I saw one time. My idea of camping is when room service is late. Uh, that's the farthest I want to go. But, <laughs> uh, but he, he describes our, our body as a tent. It means it's a temporary dwelling place. That's why I don't like staying in tents. I'd rather be in a more permanent structure. But he's telling us here that our body is just temporary. And as we age, the realities of it being just a tent and wearing down are ever so clear uh, to us. Even now I'm using a large print Bible. I don't know if you've noticed my Bible has grown here. Uh, but our eyes... Even when you hit our 40s, we recognize we cannot see things as well as we used to. But he says here in verse 14, I know that I will put it aside. 
So he's describing his identity, he's a dual-natured identity, that he's going to put this body aside, but his identity or his existence will continue on. That speaks to this dual nature. We are both body and spirit, as we see revealed in Scripture in these different places. And this is probably one of the best texts to identify or point out that reality. Which brings forth some very practical applications. The first one is this. Just as your birth is not the beginning, go ahead, Nathaniel. This is your birth is not the beginning of your life. Death is not the end. Your birth is not the beginning. You were in the womb of your mother. and uh, Our Heavenly Father, Ephesians chapter 1, was thinking about us before the creation of the world. Our existence did not start at birth. And our existence does not end at the death of our physical body. That's what Scripture is telling us. And that's why so much of biblical teaching is towards living the life that God wants us to live, so we are prepared to live in our eternal home. And so that we're the kind of people that Jesus Christ died for because this earth and its realities are not just it. Our existence goes on. Death is not the end. And for the believer, death instead becomes the entryway into eternity and the life that God has planned all along. It's a fellowship or a living with Him that He always wanted but yet was destroyed or messed up in the Garden of Eden when there's a separation because of sin. God will dwell with His people in the way that He always intended one day, and that is with this new body that the resurrection will give us, and our spirit when they're joined together. So our death is not the end. With some that are non-believers, they wish it was. <laughs> That's why they do not want to entertain eternal thoughts, because... They're content with this dropping out of existence. I just want to end. But the problem with that is, if you're ever around people that see death as the end, they're usually very fragile. The fear of dying is catapulted to the very front of their mindset. Usually they're very anxious people. They become very selfish and self-centered because they want to live it up now. And they don't want anything prematurely taken away because they know an end is coming. So instead of having a freedom that they want, I don't want to think about an afterlife and I don't believe in these Christian thoughts. Instead, they become imprisoned by the fear of dying prematurely and all of a sudden just dropping out and missing it all. That's why they want a bucket list. All these things they can cram in before the end of their life and no one better take it too early. So paranoia, fear, and extreme self-centeredness usually accompanies those who have no sense of their life going on after this life. Not all, but many, especially those that I've encountered. Scripture tells us to give attention to our soul and our spirit. To nurture what the Apostle Paul called as the inner man or the inner person. We're continually working on refining the person that's on the inside. Yes, we take care of the outside, we go to the doctor, we take our medications, we eat healthy. We always could do better, starting with me. But where we give the most attention, such as why we're here today, is to work on this inner person. To refine this character that God has given us, that's forever being recreated in the image of God, that's going to go on to be with God forever. That's the reality of this dual nature. But upon death... Our spirit leaves our body. So it's our spirit or soul that we give attention to now, where it will be in the future. Well, where will it be upon our death? The second truth that comes out in Scripture is that our spirit returns to God's control. I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out how to best describe this, the way Scripture represents it. But I think building upon Ecclesiastes 12 or 7 where it says our spirit returns to God who gave it. To say that in another way of saying our spirit returns to God's control seems to be very accurate and especially reflected in this text we'll look at next. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, one author described this as simply a fascinating text. Luke chapter 16. I remember reading it when I was younger as my mother would read Bible stories to me as uh, perhaps your mother or father did. We had separate books that were made 
more simpler uh, for the younger mind. And they always had this in it. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And I remember as a young kid being intrigued by it, uh, kind of scared by it a little, but always fascinated by it. Um, and the challenge is what to do with it. But it does give a very striking view that I think is very consistent with biblical teaching about what happens with our soul or spirit immediately upon death. If it goes back to God's control, if it separates from our body, where does it go? Let me just preface this with a couple thoughts. I'm going to read the entire text in just a moment, but many individuals have struggled, uh, Bible scholars, as Bible students, trying to figure out, is this just a story to illustrate a bigger point or is it a very real account of someone's life that Jesus, Jesus uses as a story to communicate a bigger truth? I'm not exactly sure, but I lean towards it being a very real account. Because there's some things in it that separate it from the other parables that Jesus taught, or just the stories he laid alongside another truth. First of all, Luke 16, Jesus is addressing repeatedly the problem of people misusing their wealth. He talks about the Pharisees, who he says in verse 14, who loved money. So the purpose of bringing this account in is to address people that are in love with their money. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil, Paul taught. Not money but the love of money, the misappropriation of it, or the misuse, the undue attraction to it. So this is the context of Jesus' teaching. And this is at least the third place in this chapter where he addresses a problem with money, but he tells this story that jumps right off the page at you concerning what happens upon death. Let's begin reading verse 19. I just want to read it through without any commentary, and then we'll look at some things that I think are relevant to this question of what happens to our spirit immediately upon death. Verse 19, Luke chapter 16. Jesus says, There is a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23. In Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father. Send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, 
if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Compelling, isn't it? I remember being compelled as a young boy just thinking about the dogs licking the sores of Lazarus. I remember trying to imagine that. And uh, to this day, this account is riveting in nature and compelling to think about. How do we consider it in relation to this question of how do we understand our existence after we die? First of all, is it a real account that represents actual things that will be true immediately upon someone's death concerning where they go? I believe it is. In all the other parables, I should say in all the parables of Jesus, there's never someone identified by name. You find things like a certain man went to a city or someone did this where the identity of the person or the naming of a person is not there in the normal parables of Jesus or the usual ones. But in this one you have, even though the rich man's not named by name, you have the man who's in comfort with Abraham named as Lazarus. Now, I don't think he's the same Lazarus of John chapter 11 that was raised from the dead there, but it's someone that's identified by name, which is very uncharacteristic of Jesus' parables. In fact, it's not found in any of them. So that leans this towards being a, a real account of something that very uh, well might have happened. There are other things within it because of the fact that the rich man asked for Lazarus to come down and tip his finger in water and touch his tongue. The nature of that, how satiating that would have been or relieving of pain, would make others indicate this is more of a gripping account to tell the realities of the power of our choices now and how that they will echo into eternity. Again, I lean towards this being a, an account that is very real. And I at least believe that this represents the rest of biblical teaching quite well. There's nothing in here that just is incompatible with something Peter taught or something John taught or something Paul taught. It's very consistent. It's just very unique as well. Let's look at these minor points as you see on the screen and in your notes to try to look at some things that we need to come to terms with. First of all, it is the teaching of Jesus. And anytime Jesus taught on a subject is worthy of serious consideration. So here Jesus is teaching on the afterlife. What happens upon someone's death and we need to pay close attention to it. Uh, death is described, verse 22, it says, and the time came when the beggar died. It says here, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. If you've ever seen pictures of angels carrying someone or heard that described in a funeral that the angels have carried him to God, it comes from this text. Again, this is the only place where that kind of description of death is described. But it also says that the, the rich man also died and was buried. Most likely, the poor man here, Lazarus, he was just tossed into the refuse area outside of Jerusalem where the rich man, being a man of wealth, he had a place to be buried at the time. He had a place to be buried. But it clearly describes what happens after someone died. Uh, places are described. And the most compelling place is verse 23 where it says, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. This word Hades seems to describe this place where souls will go after death. Sometimes it's called the Hadean realm. But here we find the rich man's existence continued, but yet it, it went there. Lazarus is described as being by Abraham's side, or as the King James says, in Abraham's bosom, in a place of comfort next to Abraham. Notice here it's not described necessarily that he's in heaven, but he's in this place of comfort just as the rich man is in a place of extreme discomfort. Also notice that both of them have a very conscious state. The rich man is very conscious of his sense of agony. He says, because I'm in agony in this fire. Lazarus is also conscious of his state. You have two different descriptions of the states. One is one of comfort. The other is one of anguish or agony. Also notice in verse 26, there are two very separate states of existence. 
In fact, Abraham tells the rich man as he's asked for Lazarus to tip his finger into water and then come touch his tongue to relieve him. He says, that cannot happen. He cannot go to you just as you cannot go to him. We find also that the state of agony is avoidable. Even the rich man sees it. If his brothers are just warned, they will not have to come to this place. So it's not a forced existence. But it is an irreversible existence. The destiny of both of them are set. In fact, Abraham responds that the brothers of the rich man need to listen to Moses and the prophets. They do not need a special warning from Abraham or from Lazarus. So, regardless of whether or not this is a real event with a real person and, or two real people that happened, or if it's a story that looks very real, that is simply designed to capture the realities of life after death, we still have to come to terms with it. This is not an account that can be dismissed as something Jesus was just making up on the fly to try to picture something that was not true in reality. Go ahead and go to the next slide, uh, Nathaniel. I remember growing up seeing, Michael, you probably remember seeing some charts like this as well. Um, at times over the last years, people have tried to look closely whether or not this really represents the biblical truth. I think it's pretty close. That it is that the body dies and our spirit separates. And what Luke 16 is describing that is compatible with Ecclesiastes 12, Peter and 2 Peter 1, is that they, there goes the soul, because heaven and hell have not been realized yet, the soul will go to this waiting place. The times the scripture is called Hades. Uh, you find a reference to paradise. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, which seems to be the equivalent of this place of comfort that's described in Luke 16 as by Abraham's side. But then you have this rich man going to another place that may be described in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 as Tartarus, at least in the Greek, or this place of extreme discomfort Torment, this agonizing torment, not that they're being tortured, but this idea of torment because of their decision and the accompanying flames does not make it any more comfortable. But it's this waiting place, awaiting the final actions of God where the resurrection will then eventually happen as we look at John chapter 5. Then you have the judgment, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. And then eventually the full realization of heaven and hell. I think the best way I could describe it is simply what happens upon death is our spirits or our souls immediately experience a preview of what will eventually be our future destination of either heaven and hell. Whether you want to call that a waiting place or some other term, it's what it is. Here's a, a more a recent rendering, artistic rendering. Go ahead and go to the next one, Nathaniel. Here again, you have both the saved and the lost in this world. Upon death, one goes to paradise, the soul goes to a place of comfort or a place of torment, depending on the choice that the person made. And then the judgment day is still awaiting and will happen simultaneous to the time that Christ returns. And then the resurrection also happens at the same time as Christ returns and the judgment day. And then the destiny of heaven and hell are realized. I think this is what is best represented in Scripture. There are some challenges to some of these thoughts as far as this waiting place, some questions people have raised, but what I think is clear is, regardless of exactly how this will be experienced, where we will be is determined by our choices now. Let's just explore those, uh, explore those thoughts in just a moment. First of all, you cannot change your destiny upon death. I think this is the first truth to come to terms with. And that's what comes out in this teaching of Jesus with the rich man and Lazarus. So someone thinking that, well, I'm going to do what I want and I'll be in this intermediate state and either through acts of penance or through time served or something like that, or by the prayers of people still alive, I'll somehow be prayed into another existence, or somehow something will be done for me by someone else, where I'll eventually turn out in heaven one day. 
That is simply not represented in Scripture, though it is a belief of different religious groups. That this intermediate stage provides a second chance. That is just the opposite as far as what we see in Luke 16. It's just the opposite. You cannot change your destiny upon death. If God does on His own prerogative, He can. But there's nothing in Scripture to indicate we need to hang on to that possibility or we need to reject God now hoping that He will just turn it around for us later. Or someone can do that for us through praying after we've died. The repeated emphasis in Scripture is that the time to make decisions for God is when? Now. It's before death. In fact, Ecclesiastes says, remember your Creator when? When you get really old and you're close to death? No. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. You do not see mass conversions or mass changes when people get older. As we get older, we get more set in our ways. We get more comfortable in our thinking. We want things very planned. We get anything but open to new ideas or to change. And that's again why the writer of Ecclesiastes says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. The older we get, we are less likely to make any significant change in our life by our choice. Others are usually making the choice for us. That's why the time is always now, not tomorrow, not retirement, not later, but the time is always now. Today is always the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. If there's anything that's being taught in this Luke 16 text is today is the day to make the right decision because it will be out of your hands immediately upon death. The time now is to choose to live for God. Which brings us to our final point. For the believer, here's the truth that resonates. Our spirit goes to be with Jesus. In Luke 16, before the death of Jesus, the eternal state of Lazarus was to be by Abraham's side. Which for those in the Jewish faith, uh, for those leading up to Christ, that would be very meaningful. Abraham was understood to be with God. But notice here the emphasis after the crucifixion, after the sacrificial death of Christ. We're just going to go th briefly through some text that keep going to the point of upon death for the believer, we go right into the presence of Jesus. Not necessarily immediately into heaven, but we immediately go into the presence of Jesus. Let's just walk through them briefly um, in our final moments today. First of all, Acts chapter 7, verse 59. First, I want to see this is the understanding of early believers that upon their death, they would immediately go to be with Jesus. And that was a source of great comfort. We'll first look at this extreme scene in Acts chapter 7, which is the beginning point of Christians being persecuted uh, for their faith. And here we find the first person to be murdered for their faith, and his name was Stephen. Some of the Jewish people got so angry at him and what he was saying about Jesus, they started throwing rocks at him with the intention to kill him, called stoning him. And, uh, and they are basically killing him. And right before his passing, notice what he says. Verse 59, Acts chapter 7. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my what? Receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he said this, he fell asleep. The last part, with believers, death is described as falling asleep. Because your, your existence did not end, it just changed. But Stephen's understanding was that his spirit, first of all, he understood that dual nature, body and spirit. He understood his body was just about to pass. So he prays to Jesus, receive my spirit. He had been taught that that's where his spirit would go. And he asked Jesus to receive his spirit. So that was the understanding of an early faithful Christian. He must have been taught that by one of the apostles. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now. Again, we're looking for a consistent pattern 
of teaching or understanding about exactly what happens to the believer upon death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here the apostle Paul is teaching. And he's talking about life after death. Verse 6 beginning. Verse 6, he says, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are what? Away from the Lord. So at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7, we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and beware. At home with the Lord. So here we find consistency in biblical teaching. That is, our body and soul define our existence. But he says here, if we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Implying our desired intent is to be with the Lord. Verse 9, so we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And then verse 10, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So dual existence is being taught here. He says, as long as we are at home with the body, we are away from the Lord, implying that when we are no longer at home in the body, which is upon our death, we are where? We are with the Lord. Consistent with what Stephen's understanding was in Acts chapter 7. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Another teaching about death. The Apostle Paul once again, and he's talking about his own death. And he's wrestling with whether or not it's best with to live on uh, to be a benefit to other Christians, or to go on and die. But notice his understanding about what would happen when he died. Philippians chapter 1, uh, we'll start with verse 19. Verse 19, we'll focus on 23. He says, For I know that through your prayers and Christ's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. This is pause here. Here he doesn't see death as something fearful, not that he wants to die and he's trying to speed it up, but he doesn't see it as something where he will go into this fearful, dark existence upon death. He says to die is gain. Well, why? Verse 22, for, I'm sorry, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and what? Be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain where? In the body. So he understands dual existence. He understands life in the body it would be better for them if he lived on. But he says, better for me if I die, because he goes on to what? He goes on to be with Christ. Exactly Stephen's understanding, exactly what Paul taught in another place. Then immediately upon death, they go on to be with Christ. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. This implies the state will be a state of rest. Revelation 14, verse 13. Uh, here it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, does the Spirit. They will rest from their labor. For their deeds will follow them. So here we find the same idea. At least it was taught with Lazarus. That he's in the comfort of Abraham. But now it's in the immediate comfort of Christ. But the same idea that there's rest. There's immediate rest for the soul upon death. Not this being transported into the state where you're just floating around having no idea what's happening. And you're just waiting for the millenniums to pass. It's not that idea at all. You go on to death if you're a believer to immediately be with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 now. We'll round it out with this teaching. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is, if you're going to choose a primary text that talks about the future, look at 1 Thessalonians 4 through chapter 5, 1 through 11. We'll just pick up chapter 5. 
I know I have 13 and 14 here. Let's, let's go ahead and read 13 and 14 and 4, and then look at chapter 5. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who what? Have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Him. So here at the resurrection, we'll just pause here. We'll save chapter 5, 1 through 11 for your own study. Just notice here this confirming thought. That upon the return of Christ, He's going to bring with Him those who have already died, that gave their lives to Him. And that was Stephen's understanding. They go on to be with Christ. Paul taught that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. So our soul, that is the souls of believers go on to be with Christ until the day that Christ returns. Then He brings us back. If we died before His return, to join those who will be resurrected upon His return. <clears throat> so the consistent teaching is simply, upon death for the believer, we can know for sure that we go on to be with Christ. The judgment day still awaits. Heaven in its fullest still awaits. The return of Christ still awaits. That we know immediately upon death, we go to this place of simply being with Christ. Here's how it changes everything. What we find <clears throat> is that trusting and obeying Jesus eliminates the fear of death. Trusting and obeying Jesus eliminates the fear of death. Go and turn to our last text, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> Here the writer of Hebrews, most likely the Apostle Paul, is speaking about the power of Christ's death. And the fact that Christ had to take on our human body to experience what we experience, but then also to give himself as a sacrifice. But we'll look at verse 15, we'll start with verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 15, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by what? Slavery by the fear of death. This is the greatest emancipation of them all. The fear of all mankind of what will happen at death or the fear of just dropping out of existence that causes paranoia and selfishness. He says we're freed of that. Not freed from the act of dying. I don't want to die early. I, I will continue wearing my seatbelt. I'll continue to eat well, I'll continue to see the doctor. But what we're freed from is the fear of death. Either that being all there is and we just drop out, which is horrifying enough, but the fear of what happens after death and where we go. Again, the writer says, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For those who put their faith or their trust in Jesus, you do not have to live in fear of death. You enjoy this blessed life. You take care of your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But knowing as the ravages of time and the realities of aging continue to be experienced, and death becomes a closer and closer reality, you don't have to live in fear of that. And that's why for many years I've been next to believers as they're close to death, and there is not fear. There's a calm resolve that they're close to seeing their God. And everything they planned for, everything they've centered their life around, is sometimes even just hours away from being realized. Or in one case, it was moments away because they died at the hospital with me there. It's a blessed assurance. 
It's a blessed assurance when you're safe in the arms of Jesus. These older hymns capture it so powerfully. What believers in past times understood as far as what Jesus did for them. Jesus changes everything. But the time is now to make a decision for Him. Gently He knocks at the door. He speaks softly. Softly and tenderly. He calls out to people to put their faith and trust in Him now. Deathbed conversions are extremely rare. Conversion in old age is extremely rare. Now is the time to make decisions for God. Either to live a sin or leave a sinful path, to restore broken relationships with other people if you're already a believer and you know there's things you need to do, or if you resisted baptism thinking that you should not have to submit to that and that's not for you, now's the time to make a decision to be baptized for the remission of sins as a believer that understands what is happening at baptism. Now is the time to make those decisions. Tomorrow's hymns go, it may be too late. This is the ultimate reality of knowing we go somewhere immediately upon death. It's determined by our choices now. So our knowledge of life after death changes everything now. Everything becomes meaningful. Every decision counts. And rejecting God and rejecting His salvation through Jesus is like I said two weeks ago, it's like burning your own house down. You're doing nothing but destroying the only hope that you have with no guarantee that tomorrow you can turn that around. I'm going to sing a song in just a moment to encourage you to make whatever change you need to make in your life. If you're a believer already, but yet Satan is taking you a direction you know you shouldn't go, change that direction. If you put off making a decision for God that you know you need to make, either to be baptized or to repent or put your trust in Jesus, whatever stage you're at, now is the time to do that. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee of an hour from now. Now is always the time. Now is always the time. If you want to make a decision, we'll stand here to help you. We'll help you figure out what the decision is. Maybe you're not sure what you need to do, but we'll help you. We're going to sing this song right now to encourage you to make a decision you know you need to make. Let's stand and sing.